Um, I'm not going to give a Father's Day message because I asked Pastor Ben, what would you want me to talk on? And he said, lifestyle evangelism. That was the topic that he suggested. So I am going to talk about lifestyle evangelism, uh, but I would say that the mission of God or witnessing any evangelism is the hearts of God the Father. So even as BJ was saying, um, we know a perfect father, okay? And as we study his word, we know who he is. And even if we don't have a father in our home, uh, we have the perfect example as seen in Jesus Christ. So I'm calling today uh, Mission Impossible. But I do want to uh, say one thing. You know, when they have a missionary come up and they want them to talk about missions or evangelism, those are kind of the common topics that they give for, for missionaries. In fact, the other day I was told also to talk on fasting. It's some of these topics like you don't hear very often, but the missionary comes to town and it's like he must be an expert in this. And I just want to say, um, I'm just like you. We're all learning together. <laughs> Uh, when I talk about missions, it's not as though it's easy for me or evangelism, not at all, okay? I thank God in the ministry that, that we've been a part of. We've been able to share with hundreds, thousands of, of Muslims the gospel face-to-face. -face. Uh, but never once within myself did I want to talk to those people. <laughs> within my flesh, there was no desire to go up to a complete stranger. In fact, last week, um, I was returning a trailer that I had, it's a long story, but I broke my dad's car. And then we were returning the trailer that we used to tow it. And the man that we gave the U-Haul to was a Sikh. I could tell from his wrap, you know, on his head that he was a Sikh. And we just started small talk, right? Where he was from, uh, where the closest temple was, things like that. We signed the papers and went on our way. Well, later that day, I just was really convicted because I never mentioned Christ to him. Yeah, God was just convicting me like, why didn't you mention me? I gave you an opportunity. Well, I just mentioned that because we're all growing. <laughs> we're all trying to be faithful to God, all right? So as we go to the text and look at what we have today, I'm not saying that I figured it out, okay? But may God help us and give us the grace to be faithful to him. Well, I'm calling this Mission Impossible, or sorry, Mission Possible, but one of the reasons I'm calling it Mission Possible is because of, like I just mentioned, Mission Impossible. Have you guys seen that movie? Or I don't know how many there are, hundreds of them now. But in that movie, at the very beginning, uh, when Tom Cruise receives uh, the call, um, it usually goes like this at the beginning. I haven't watched all of them, but... It says, good morning, Mr. Hunt. Here is your mission if you choose to accept it. And then Tom Hanks puts, or not Tom Hanks, <laughs> Tom Cruise puts on the glasses. He sees the mission and he decides to accept it and jumps off the cliff with an umbrella or however, whatever he does. <laughs> but I thought it was kind of similar for us, right? We need to understand the mission if we're going to accept it or if we're going to be faithful in carrying it out, right? We need to know this mission. So what I want to do with you guys today, we're going to take a kind of a survey of the mission of God, all right, through Scripture. Now, there's a few places you're going to look up, but I put a lot of the Scripture on screen. But I believe it's really important that we step back and we see the big picture of what God is doing throughout all of Scripture. So as I said, we're going to talk about the mission of God. And I would like to say that God's in, uh, the whole Bible is a product of God's mission. That is God's engagements with God's world through God's people for God's purpose. What is that purpose? 
It is the redemption of all of God's creation. Now, in this sense, we can say that we all are missionaries. So don't look at me, right? You guys are all missionaries. And as you go out the door today, you're going into the mission fields. How you live and talk and, and walk, uh, you are witnessing to our king. You're a part of God's mission. As uh, Charles Spurgeon, I know Pastor Ben, he's not here, but he loves Charles Spurgeon, so I had to throw a Spurgeon quote in here. Spurgeon said there are two types of Christians, missionaries and imposters, meaning there's only one type of Christian, that's a missionary. Everybody else is, is uh, playing around. Now, if he says that, he's obviously not talking about someone that goes to a foreign country like Dama and myself, okay? But rather, he's talking about not necessarily what we do, but who we are. And as we serve a God of mission, if we're made in his image, we're carrying out that same calling in our life. As he sent out the disciples, he sent out all of us, not just the 12, but everyone who confesses Christ. Now, some have said uh, this is kind of a bold move to say that we should read all of Scripture as, as mission to see God's plan unfold. And we can't do this with everything. Okay, we can talk about the biblical basis of marriage, but we can't say the basis of the Bible is marriage. Okay, or we can talk about the biblical basis of work, but we can't say work is the purpose of the Bible. Okay, but mission is different. And the first place, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn is Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I believe it is justifiable to say this because the Lord Jesus Christ had a missional hermeneutic. That is, he saw the scriptures through the lens of God's mission. So Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 44, this is after the resurrection of Christ. Jesus with his disciples... It reads in verse 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus meets with the disciples in the first few days after his resurrection. Maybe you're wondering what he did. We get a clue here. He taught from the Old Testament. He taught from the Old Testament. He says in verse 44 that... Uh, what was written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms was about him. Those were the three main divisions of the Old Testament. You had the law, you had the prophets, and you had the writings, which the poetic works fit into that. And he says it was about him. And then in 45, he says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That word, scriptures, is always about the Old Testament. Then again, in 46, he says, Thus it is written, which was common for referring to the Old Testament. Well, what was written in the Old Testament about him? He says a few things. He says that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. Now, I would suggest most of us stop there, and we have a, a messianic uh, interpretation of Scripture. And rightfully so, right? We go back to the Old Testament 
and we look for prophecies about the death of Christ and the burial and resurrection of Christ, the heart of the message of the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse 47, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And he says, you are my witnesses. Now this sounds an awful lot like Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus' commission to the disciples. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's one of the commissioning statements. Well, Jesus here is saying this was written about him in the Old Testament. Now, if you're like me, when I read this several years ago, I thought, well, where? Where in the Old Testament? We do this with, obviously, the Messiah. But what about the fact that his name would be proclaimed amongst all the nations? Well, this is where I think the scriptures, uh, Jesus is referring to as a whole, okay? He's talking about the, the narrative as a whole. And what I want us to do with our time, we're going to run pretty fast through here, but look at the vision of God from the Old Testament about missions. What was undeniable, if you read the New Testament, is that people were so passionate about getting the gospel out, right? They sacrificed their lives, and many of them died for the sake of people hearing the gospel. Well, where did they have this conviction? Where did it come from? Even for you, when you think about missions, what verses come to your mind? I would imagine most of us, it's in the New Testament, right? Matthew, right? The Great Commission at the end of the book. Like I said, Acts 1.8, many others, or the examples you see in Acts, the book of Acts. But for those that were written in the book of Acts, those people, Paul, Timothy, the first church, those scriptures weren't there, right? Even Matthew was written uh, towards the end of Acts or even later, Okay, they weren't written in the same form. So what did they use to uh, push them to share the gospel? Well, it was the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was this driving force that helped them see God's perfect uh, purpose for the nations. Well, today we're going to look at three of these, and next week we're going to look at the other two. We're going to first look at God with a mission, humanity with a mission, and then we're going to spend most of our time, Old Testament Israel with a mission. The next week we'll get to Jesus with a mission and us, the church, with a mission. So let's start with the first one, God with a mission. I don't know if you can see that on the screen, but hopefully you can. I got this from a book I would recommend. It's called The Drama of Scripture. And this is the missional drama of Scripture. And N.T. Wright and other scholars have suggested we can think and try to understand the drama of Scripture with different acts, uh, different transitions in the text. And act one would be creation. Obviously, God creates the earth and he creates humanity and it was all goods. Genesis 1 and 2. Then act two would be the fall or the rebellion against what God has created in Genesis 3. And then 3 to 11, there's just a, a, a perpetual sin, right? A rebellion against God. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, we get this Old Testament promise through Abraham. This would be Act 3. And then through the kings and prophets, God sent these people uh, for them to draw them back to God, but ultimately to point to Act number 4, which would be Christ and the gospel, and of course, Christ in the gospel is the life of Christ, specifically the death and resurrection of our Lord. And then Act 5 would be the New, uh, New, New Testament mission. 
And that includes us. How cool, right? We're included in this grand story of what God is doing. And then finally, we go back to act number six, which is the new creation. We start in creation, then we go back to the new creation. We've been redeemed. All of creation has been redeemed. Now, as I said, uh, we are missionaries because God is a missionary. Fundamentally, all mission flows from God. Even in Acts uh, from 1 to 2, after sin, who was the first missionary? It was God. Remember, after Adam and Eve sins, we're told the next day, he's, his voice is there in the garden. He's in the garden. He's saying, where are you, right? He comes to redeem people. So a biblical worldview is a missional, a missional worldview. And I believe this is really important for, for several reasons. But in our ministry, even evangelism and discipleship, it's important to see the whole picture. We often start with the Gospels, but if we don't lay the foundation, why is there a need for a Savior, and what is He saving us from, uh, we often get confused and lost, even with apologetics. Most of the questions that I hear from skeptics, of course I'm dealing mostly with Muslims, have to do with the Old Testament, right? And differences, and even I hear many today, oh, how do you deal with all the laws? And maybe you've read, uh, hopefully, the Old Testament, and you probably find it difficult to read. What is the purpose of all these Old Testament laws? Well, hopefully, as we go through this, you'll understand uh, more and more. It's really helped me. So let's go to the next act. That would be humanity with a mission. And if you have a Bible, you can turn to uh, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, before the fall, before act 2, we're given a mission. That is a command how we should live. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And if you jump to 2.15, still before the fall, he says something similar. In 2.15, he says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So here before the fall, we have a responsibility, a part to play in what God is doing. And as I mentioned there, there is a ecological responsibility with creation and plants, animals. Obviously, they're in the garden. They're taking care of the garden. And even an economic and social responsibility to each other, right? It says the the husband and the wife will leave, right? Their parents and be joined together. There's forming a new relationship. There's order and structure in these relationships. And even after the fall, uh, in Genesis chapter 4, You have uh, Cain and Abel, the first murder, but why did they murder, right? Well, it was over the birthright, but what was the birthright all about? Well, about your inheritance, right? Your financial uh, stability later in life. That might seem difficult for us to understand, maybe in in this culture, but your inheritance, and like I said with that first story, the in-laws will sometimes try to put a curse (laughs) on... uh, the husband, so that the lady will stay with them because they need the lady, they need the finances later in life. Uh, That is their retirement, so to speak. Well, that is broken in Genesis 4. Of course, they're rebelling against what God has established. 
Now, when I mention this, uh, I would imagine some of us are like, oh no, don't say, don't talk about loving creation, that kind of thing. I'm not saying hug a tree. Don't, <laughs> don't get me wrong or connect with Mother Earth or anything like that. Not at all. But we don't want to go to the extreme and say that we don't have any responsibility over creation. Because that was there before sin. And after sin, what were we doing? What was Adam and Eve doing? The same thing, right? They were, they were caring for creation, right? The, for the garden that was there. We still have the responsibility. And that is a powerful witness. And sadly, sometimes the response that we take as Christians and responding to the, the panentheist, right? That believes God is in creation or some of the new age movements. Uh, we miss actually the biblical mandate here for us to also care because it is God's work and we are his stewards of what he has given to us. Well, most of the time I want us to talk about this third point here. Uh, Israel with a mission. And we've broken it down into missional monotheism, missional election. That is, who did God choose and for what purpose? Missional eschatology. What plan does God have for the nations in the future? And then missional ethics. How should those people that were elected live? And all this is for a means of, of mission. So let's break this down. And again, I hope it gives us a little more help in understanding the Old Testament. I will put up the verses and we can, we can read along and think about them. Or you can write them down and go back too. I just know that my mom took way too much of my time. And I knew it was coming. I've known her for so long. So I just put the verses up there. So missional monotheism, that's obviously what we believe about God, right? We believe in one God. And Yahweh, as revealed in the Old Testament, is unique and a universal God. As it says here in Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, he says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in to give you their land for inheritance as it is this day. You know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. You see that repeated, right? That he is unique compared to anything else, right? He is unique and special. Now, we read these passages throughout Scripture, and we sang that song, Holy, 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 right? Is the Lord God Almighty. Sometimes we get, we get used to, oh yeah, God, there's none like Him. But again, the, the context of the Old Testament, and you're talking B.C., not before COVID, but the other B.C. <laughs> the other B.C., uh, the concept of God in the time of the Old Testament was anything but monotheistic, Okay. Uh, Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology. Uh, you had gods that gave birth to offspring and multiplied. They were more polytheistic, many different gods, and they served certain purposes for certain seasons. And here comes Yahweh, and he is unique and universal. The next verse I want us to look, we see that Yahweh owns and rules the whole world, not just Israel. Again, in contrast to what was accepted during that day, he is unlike Everything he owns, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Verse 14 in Deuteronomy 10, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, 
the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Amen? Well, Yahweh owns and rules the whole world. Now, why is this important? Well, when Jesus comes, as we're going to see here, he does all that Yahweh does in the Old Testament as the creator, ruler, judge, and savior. I don't have these verses uh, typed out up there, but you know the scripture in Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. I'll just read it. Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that being Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we look forward to that day. Now this wasn't necessarily something new. Paul is actually borrowing some of how it's described of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Isaiah 45, verse 23, it says, By myself I have sworn from my mouth and has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. See how they took that from the Old Testament Paul and he applies it to Jesus. He is this unique ruler. Then in 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6, we see the Shema, that so important statement that the Israelites were supposed to hold dear to their life, that hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians applies it to Jesus. And it says in verse 6, And yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Now he says, yet for us, which is important because Paul's speaking to who? He's speaking to the church at Corinth, but he's not speaking just to a Jewish audience, right? It was Jews and Gentiles. It was a mixed audience there. And he says it's for, for us, what Yahweh described himself in the Old Testament, he even applies this to Jesus. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One other passage you can write down, which I think, the, again, the, the people in the New Testament understood this from the Old Testament, that Jesus fulfilled the uniqueness as a creator ruler, is Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter, in that famous sermon... He says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Well, who is that name? Clearly over and over in the Old Testament, that name, which is unique, there's only one Savior, that is, that is God himself. This can be called missional monotheism, right? It's God displayed in Christ. And this uniqueness of Jesus is really the foundation of mission and what we proclaim, right? There's salvation only in Jesus. Amen? This is what we believe and we know to be true. So we don't just follow Jesus because we picked Jesus, because the other people didn't work out. You know, I tried all the other religions, but you know, Jesus is the best option. No, but as we see it from the very beginning, right? He's been revealed or he's been fulfilled. God has been fulfilled and seen in the person of Jesus Christ. All right, the next one is missional election. Missional election. Now, I think for a time we won't look there, but hopefully you know Genesis 12. I said Act 3 is very important. 
After chapter 11 comes chapter 12. That's why my parents spent money for me to go to Bible school, to know these type of things. But that's so important that we understand in, in chapter 12, God calls a people. And specifically, it started with a person called Abraham. And Abraham was called, as it says in verse 3, to be a blessing to the nations. A blessing to the nations. Now again, if, if someone asks you, where does the gospel begin? Or where does mission begin in the Bible? You probably say somewhere in the New Testament. But Paul didn't see it that way. Remember Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So God chose Israel, and the Christ, the Messiah, would come through Israel. Now there's two parts of this election. There's a universal purpose, like I said, is to be a blessing to the nations. We see that fulfilled in Revelation 7-9 where every nation's crying out to God, and the particular means, which being Israel, Israel was chosen. And the two are very important. God chose Israel for a universal purpose, right? To bless all nations. Now, I say it's important, one, because of Scripture, but often if you hear the arguments about election, right? Predestination, free will, the sovereignty of God. Do we have free will, right, if he's elected us? I think we go about the question uh, wrong. We're asking a question that really the text isn't trying to ask. Is what we see here, right, that election is missional. It's actually for the sake of all. It's not for the sake of a select few. He chose Israel so that all would be blessed through them. They would come to saving faith ultimately in Jesus Christ. And of course, Abraham, like I said, is mentioned by Paul in Galatians 3, also Romans 4. He brings this connection. The Abrahamic blessing is the Abrahamic mission, which is ultimately God's mission found in Christ. So election isn't this arithmetic, how to get to heaven, who's in, who's out. From the very beginning, God chose Israel so that they'd be a blessing to many people. All right, the second to last one, missional eschatology. Maybe as you've gone through the Old Testament, you've seen the word nations a lot. It appears many times. Well, what does it mean? Well, at least three ways that Israel was supposed to influence the nations or the relationship with the nations. Number one, in Joshua 2.10, it's the story of uh, Rahab when the spies were sent in uh, to Jericho and they meet Rahab, a Canaanite. And notice what Rahab says about the people of Israel. She says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. So she had observed, or heard rather, what God had done through the people of Israel. So number one, they're seen as spectators. The nations in the Old Testament, if you want to use an analogy of, uh, with drama and plays, on stage you have the Israelites and then in the audience, you have the nations, and they are spectators, and they're looking at what's going on, what God is doing through the elect people, Israel. And isn't it interesting that Rahab here, we read in the story, uh, she is converted, and God saves her, right? He takes a, a person of the nations, a Canaanite woman, and saves her. He's, she's the first person that we read about here in Joshua in the promised land. Well, it's not only uh, 
as spectators, but also beneficiaries. We'll read one, sorry it's so long here, but in 1 Kings chapter 8, after Solomon uh, built the temple, he prays and dedicates the temple uh, to God's, and he prays for the nations here. He prays for the foreigners, and look what he says about the foreigner, foreigners in his prayer. He says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hands and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. Why should he answer that? It says, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So this is a, it's a missionary prayer that Solomon is, is giving. He's saying, when they come, may they pray to you and you may answer them so that they would come to the knowledge of you and all glory go to you. They're benefiting uh, by being a part. But arguably the, the most common way that we see the nations is that they actually belong to Israel. And of course, in the New Testament, we have Paul, right? He uses that analogy that the nations have been grafted in, very common throughout the Bible. In the New Testament, Paul uses it. But it's not just in the New Testament. Where is Paul getting it? Well, I think he's getting it from the Old Testament. Here's real quick a few examples of it. You can write the verses down. Psalm 87. And there we read that there's actually a register for the nations, they're going to be in heaven. Again, this is something future, the nations. And in that register are the people of Cush. Uh, today, that would be Ethiopia, part of Africa. There's also Babylon that's mentioned in this register. Uh, modern day, that would be Iraq and that region. And we praise God for that. But also Isaiah 19, 16 through 25 we see that they're blessed with God's salvation. And in 19, it actually mentions the Egyptians. How interesting that the Egyptians are mentioned here. It says, when the Egyptians cry out, again, this is something future, and it's in contrast to the past where they didn't cry out, they continue to rebel and be stubborn against God. It says, when they cry out, God will hear them and they'll be saved. We praise God for that. Then Isaiah 56, 3 through 8. Some, maybe you too, in the text here, it, it gives the impression that some thought that people weren't going to be saved outside of Israel. There's only going to be Israel. And sometimes when we read the scriptures, it's like, wait, I wish I was, I wish I was a Jew, right? <laughs> well, here the assumption is that some wouldn't be saved, but it says that they are accepted in God's house, that they would be saved. Also, Zechariah 2.10, we see that the, the nations are joined with God's people, What's interesting here is the language that's used, and I quote uh, verse 11, he says, shall the, the nation shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, referring to the nations. Well, that same phrase was used over and over the Old Testament to refer to the Israelites, the people of God. Well, that's of the nations. And then finally, the nations, not just the nations, but even creation will rejoice in the new creation. We see it in the Old Testament, and then obviously in Romans, we see that the creation is yearning and longing for the return of our, 
of the creation to be renewed when our Lord Jesus returns back. Well, the last one here that I want to touch on, and then we'll think about, finally, this is just all way of introduction, guys. We're getting to what Pastor Ben wants me to talk on. (laughs) (laughs) Missional ethics. And again, this is one area where you read the book of Leviticus, and you're like, what in the world? How am I supposed to understand all these commands and laws? But one thing that's repeated over and over in Leviticus is that the people of Israel must not live according to the customs of the other nations. So what the law does is show that the people of Israel are unique, right? They're different by how they live. Now, Genesis chapter 18, even before the law was given, we see to Abraham, they were called to be different. There was a way for them to walk in which would distinguish them. Now, I just put up uh, verse 19 here. But verse 18, as the angel of the Lord goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, he stops by at Abraham's place and reiterates the blessing that he would be to the nations. And then this is what he says here in verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And what has he promised him? Right, that the nations will be blessed through him, ultimately found in Christ Jesus. Well, how are they going to do that? By keeping the way of the Lord. By keeping the way of the Lord. And we're given an example what this means by doing justice and righteousness by the way that we live, right? So the way that they are, they are going to be different from the beginning is by their ethics. Another example here, Exodus 19, 4 through 6. It reads, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. There in the middle, indeed obey my voice and keep my covenants, right? And keep the laws which God has given. Notice there, it doesn't say obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you're going to go to heaven, right? Then I'll come down and and take you to heaven. But rather it says, then you shall be my treasured possession among all people. So they were supposed to be different as a testimony to to all people. A light, as Isaiah says, to the Gentiles. Last verse here, Deuteronomy chapter 4, 6 through 8. They were called to be a visible model to the nations. It says, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who when they hear of these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise, has a wise and under, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law and I set before you today? Well, they're a model to be followed, an ethical model, to be a light to those around them. Now, in closing here, how does this apply to us, this ethical dimension? Well, when we talk about lifestyle evangelism, we're talking about our actions, right? How we live. And we clearly see it, hopefully you see it, is from the beginning, the, the people of God realized 
that how they lived was extremely important for the mission of God to be accomplished. Now, Jesus actually applied this. But before we look at Jesus, even think of Paul, right? He said, if you have an unbelieving spouse, right, you should win them over by your good conduct. Or even an unbelieving master, same thing. You win them over by your good conduct. And then look how Jesus applies it here. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp or put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there is this ethical dimension even for us, right? Yes, we're saved by grace. We're not saved by works, okay? In fact, as Paul says, we're saved for good works, right? Not by good works. But we should be known for our good works. People should see, right, that God has changed us, right? And now we're free by the grace of God to love and lay down our lives for other people. And the last time I shared about a month ago, I was asking you guys, you know, why, why do people not follow Christ, your neighbors? If it's the gospel that causes them offense, we know that that's what the scriptures talk about, right? We praise God if it's the gospel. But in my experience, most of the time, it's not the gospel, right? It's usually not the gospel. It's rather the, the Christians and how we live, right? They see the double standard in our life. And they say, why would I serve that God? I don't even want to listen, right? And many people have made uh, these type of statements before. I'm sure you've experienced it before. Well, I leave you with this one quote by Brennan Manning. He's an author. He's always made me think. And I think I've experienced this too. Uh, he says that the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today are Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but then they walk out the church doors like his unfailing love never existed. This is what the world finds so unbelievable. I think there's some truth in that. So like as, as I said at the beginning, as we go out these doors, let us be mindful. As we represent God, we are commissioned to go out and be missionaries uh, to a world that needs Christ. So next week, we're going to look at Jesus' mission and the church's mission. If you felt like it was too, too heady, like a fire hose being thrown on you, next week will be a little easier, all right? So I think the worship team's going to come up. I'm going to pray, and then we'll be dismissed after we sing their song. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, we thank you that you've included us in this story. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to be obedient to what you've said. Help us to trust you, that you will never leave us for forsake us, and that this mission is possible through you, Jesus. Help each person here. Holy Spirit, guide us to be your workers, Lord, your ambassadors. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.